Well, welcome everyone to another edition of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. This is Ben Galker. Due to some technical issues, our normal host Jordan is not with us tonight, but I'm thrilled to be joined by uh, Laz Chance on DBB. Laz Jackson, good to be with you. How are you doing? I'm great, Ben. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm excited to talk about uh, at least a couple of these teams. We're covering the Southeast Division tonight. Uh, I was just telling Laz before we started, I don't have a ton to say about Orlando and Atlanta because to me those teams are, are, are pretty uninteresting with only a few guys that that really are um, going to do much, I think, this NBA season. But there's a couple teams here in this division that I think personally are pretty interesting in spite of the fact that there haven't been many changes kind of throughout the division. Uh, we're going to get things starting uh, with the Washington Wizards, a team that I think sort of came into their own last season, didn't do a whole lot um, in terms of bringing in any new talent, but still a pretty solid team. Uh, Laz, we can start with kind of a best case and worst case scenario. Uh, what do you think is the best case and worst case for these Wizards? So I agree with your assessment that the Wizards didn't really do a whole lot last year uh, to improve upon their team. But uh, if you remember, they they had a huge win streak in the middle of the year where they were playing like the second best team in basketball. And then uh, towards the end of the year, they kind of regressed more towards a uh, a 500 team. So I think if they can play to the level that they played at at their high point more consistently throughout the entirety of the year, I think in the best that best case scenario, I think they're a 50 win team. Um, with with a slight bit of improvement from Beal and you know Wall maintaining his like just sub MVP level point guard play and. Uh, Porter continuing to do the things that he's good at, I think they can uh, be a 50-win team. Now, worst case scenario, that doesn't happen, and uh, they still make the playoffs, but uh, the team probably wins only about 45 games. Um, Porter doesn't uh, he doesn't play as well. He regresses a little bit. He tries to do too much, maybe, um, to justify the contract, or uh, you end up with a scenario where Beal doesn't play as many games as he did last year. I believe he played more than 70 games last year, the first time that that's happened in a couple of years. So maybe he hit, gets hit with a couple of nagging injuries. Um, maybe the I know Markeith Morris will be ready to start the season. Maybe they'll start off slow, and you know that kind of uh, lowers the ceiling on their win total for the year. But yeah, I, can, I could see this team uh, still... You know, even in the worst case scenario, still making the playoffs and getting about 45 games. Uh, what, what about you? What do you think your your best case and the worst case is? Yeah, I mean, I largely agree with all of that. I, I think there is a chance that this could be a 50-win team. Um, you know, I think it's interesting. They could get to those 50 wins by nature of the last 10 games of the season being matched up against teams that don't care about making the playoffs or haven't been solid all season. And there's lots of ways I think they could get to 50 wins in spite of the fact that they didn't really bring any new talent in. Um, a really interesting to me because their core is still so incredibly young. I think the things that could potentially go wrong for them, uh, their front court's old. Uh, Gortat is, is, is still solid. He, he played a lot of minutes for them last season. He played in all 82 games, but He's currently 32, I believe, closing in on 33. Uh, and they don't they don't have a super strong front court. I mean, obviously, they're, they're built around their backcourt. They're built around Wall and Beal and, and, of course, Otto Porter. I think Otto Porter, to me, is a super interesting player. He's sort of a, a Swiss Army knife, multi-tool kind of guy who does everything and manages to score the ball at an extraordinarily uh, efficient rate, or at least he did last season. I think your your comments about him potentially pushing a little bit are spot on. I think he needs to continue to just be the player he's been and and not try to do any more than he's doing to justify that contract to the public. Because I think that the team and the franchise understand the value he's already bringing to the table. So to me, those I mean, those are obviously their three guys. Beal's health, Wall's health to an extent, uh, Gortat's health, those are the things that could get them in a little bit of trouble. But I think 50 wins is definitely possible if they get basically the same amount of um, games and minutes out of their big guys. Depending on if there is an injury, I think it depends on who gets hurt. I think if Bill goes down for an extended period of time, that hurts them pretty badly. Same for Wall. Um, Given the way that the NBA is moving towards small ball, I think they can probably 
piece together some odd lineups if they have some nagging injuries to big guys. But yeah, pretty much coastline. I think 50 wins is is attainable, uh, and I think a 500 team is the absolute basement for this team, and and that would mean something has gone off the rails pretty significantly. Uh, who do you think are their most important and most interesting guys? I think their most important and their most intriguing guys is the same person. It's Kelly Oubre. Uh, he can be, in in his best case, he can be the small ball uh, four and the wing that they have next to Otto Porter to kind of unlock their like true small ball lineup where they could play Mark uh, Morris at the five and just play five out and just have all the spacing and and all and still you know be able to rebound and defend at a at a baseline quality level but that's only if you know Ubre continues to uh, improve upon the the defensive strides he made last year uh, especially you know in the playoffs and uh, if he can can continue to make the shots that he's good at he's not particularly a great uh, off the dribble shooter he's he's a catch and shoot guy but he, he doesn't really shoot that great from three anyway so any small improvements in that area where uh as long as he's not the non-shooter on the floor in a super small lineup i think that kind of unlocks what the wizards are really looking for um you know I, you made a good point about how the wizards are uh their front court's not very deep and it's kind of old and so having a young you know a young long guy in the front court really take that next step. I think that's what that's what makes another part of what makes this such a a big uh, deal for the Washington Wizards. Uh, what about you? What do you think? Uh, who do you think the most important player is for Washington? Yeah, so I'm going to say Wall is still the most important player because I think he's their best player. Um, but I agree with everything you just said about Ubre. There's there's not much more I think I can add to that. The thing that to me is um, kind of interesting is this the storyline for the Wizards, right? So to me, their their core is like 21, 22, 23, 24 years old, but they're mostly pro- perimeter players. And to me, this team is positioned as well as anybody, uh, except maybe Boston, who I, I think is still positioned pretty well, to be the next big thing in the East when LeBron James eventually starts to decline whenever no, <laughs> whenever that is, because he's still incredible. Uh, but they have some real work to do in the front court to make that happen. And, you know, I, I don't know they have a ton of assets to get them there. So to me, the storyline for them is what's the next step slash piece? Because, you know, if they're a team that does stay healthy and does play up to their capacity and they win 48 to 50 games, I, I think that's the question they have to be asking themselves and the fact that they didn't really do anything over the summer to take the next step. I mean, obviously you're hoping for some internal development out of your young stars and you're hoping for some internal development out of Ubre, but you, you can't get around the fact that Gortat's 32, uh, that Mar- Markeith Morris is, is never going to be more than he is and, and questions like that. So to me, that's kind of the, the interesting piece for the Wizards is, is what's the next step and, and what the what is the next piece? Do you do you have uh, any trade targets for them that would kind of take them to the next place? Do you, do you, you have know, I don't. I don't have anything in mind, but I, I know you have something interesting lined up. So why don't you tell the people about that? So I'm, uh, I've, I've heard this kind of floating around and it's uh, it's Otto Porter, who you know now is getting paid his ginormous salary. And Mike Scott and a couple picks. I don't know exactly how many first-round picks Washington has, but I think you know one or two would probably be enough to get this done in a good case for uh, for Demarcus Cousins for Boogie. Uh, you know, Wall and Boogie know each other from their time together at Carolina. Uh, Boogie's a young uh, front-court piece for them. If Kelly Oubre steps up and could take that Otto Porter role, I think that leaves them uh, in a pretty good shape. With with regards to uh, you know Ubre's taking a Porter's spot, so that uh, there's no drop off really in the front court with with regards to the trade. Uh, that's that's just something that's really intriguing to me because Boogie is talented enough that you could still kind of play five out, but you could also just kind of dump in the ball to him, let him go to work on the block, get you you know 25 and 12 
but uh, I'm not sure exactly how that would fit with the locker room, though. That's my main concern. Boogie is Boogie's left a trail of destruction in locker rooms, you know, ever since Kentucky. <laughs> so, is would, would Wall be the guy to kind of you know knock him out of that, or be a guy, another alpha that he feels like he can defer to, or you know, a guy that like this is my team. You know, I don't have to secede anything. You can't just come in here and like run, you know, everything. We've been doing a good job. What do you like? Does that sound like something that could work? It's like I'm I'm a little too optimistic on Boogie. What do you think? You know, I'm not I'm not as big of a fan of Cousins as a lot of people are. Um, but I'm also a little bit of a stat geek when it comes to efficiency, and and sometimes I sometimes I'm that way to a fault. And and so you know I don't know about Cousins just generally. I I think you know you if you put him in in Washington, I think you have. Everything you just said about his personality is correct. Um, you have two guys in Beal and Wall who are accustomed to taking a lot of the shots. So something's got to give because there's only one ball. So that's a potential pitfall. I think defense becomes a real question mark for them, right? Because I, I think you can make the case Porter's their best defender. In your scenario, Ubre stepping into that role and maybe can guard three and four depending on matchups. Um but the locker room, that's the real question. And I think that sort of leads into coaching. I don't have strong feelings about the coaching staff of the Wizards right now. And I don't – throwing a wild card like Boogie into the mix, I don't know. what. How do you think that would work? What, how would that play out? Does the, is the coaching staff equipped to deal with that kind of a, a major personnel shift? That's a good question. I hadn't really considered it from that angle. I know Scott Brooks has a, a little bit – of experience in dealing with uh, explosive personalities from his time in Oklahoma City with, uh, you know, Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook. But those guys seem to get along more than than DeMarcus seems to get along with his teammates. And neither of those guys is, uh, is as explosive temperamentally as Boogie is. So, you know, overall, though, I think Scott Brooks is a good coach for this team. Uh, he really got them to buy in on the defensive end for a good chunk of last year, which is where a lot of their improvement came from. And, you know, they were they were so poorly coached by Randy Whitman uh, previous to Brooks's tenure that I think kind of any coach that wasn't Whitman would be a, a general improvement, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think personally, whenever I see players like John Wall and Bradley Beal, um, really young guards who like to shoot a lot. Whenever I see them improve and take significant steps the way those two have, I think you have to give the coach a bit of credit. So while I don't have a ton of strong feelings about Scott Brooks, I think, you know, from a fan perspective, you have to think real seriously about the fact that those two guys have really come into their own under Scott Brooks, and I think that says something about what he and his, his team are doing. Um, Over-under, wins and losses... I think we're both pretty similar here. Um, I've got them at 47 wins, and that's really because I just I can't quite commit yet, given these odd injury histories and a little bit of the weaknesses I see in the front court. And so that puts me a little bit on the under. Vegas has them at 49 and 33. Uh, where do you see them finishing the season? I've got them at 48 wins for you know very similar reasons. Uh, if Markeith Morris wasn't out, to start the year, you could you could talk me into this being a 55-win team with a with a 50-win you know middle of the road performance. But without Morris, uh, I don't see how this team uh, wins 50 games most of the time. Yeah, and these these good teams in the East, um, the, the the way that the bottom half of the East is looking right now, I, I think any of these teams that we're looking at like the 45 to 48 win range could find themselves stumbling into a handful of wins that they shouldn't really get just because the East could potentially be so bad at the bottom. So uh, yeah, 47, 48 wins sounds pretty realistic for a team that um, pretty much the same as last year, but last year they were pretty good and um, not a team that I'd really want to play in the first round. If for whatever reason they, you know, they slip to the fifth seed somehow, if I'm Cleveland or Boston or whoever ends up in the third seed, uh, definitely not a team I want to play in the first round or the second round, assuming they stay healthy and, and get somewhere around 50 wins. Uh, 
any closing thoughts about the Wizards? Otherwise, we'll we'll move on to the Miami Heat. Uh, they they should have beaten Boston last year in the playoffs. So I would definitely be looking forward to another uh, Boston Washington playoff series. I think that'd be really fun, even with the changes. Yeah, that, yeah, that could be a pretty fantastic series. Yeah. And Boston as a whole, I think, is going to be um, it's going to be pretty fun to watch, even for a diehard anti-Celtics uh, guy like myself. So. All right, moving on to the Miami Heat, another team who um, kind of just recycled, right? I mean, no huge changes. Um, give me sort of your best case, worst case. What are you expecting out of the Miami Heat this season? So I'm thinking in the in the best case, they repeat the magic that they had last year, but uh, for the entirety of the season instead of, you know, suffering – uh, an 11 and 30 start. Uh, maybe they go you know, around 500 around that time, and then you end up around 47 wins, something like that. Uh, Dion Waiters and James Johnson stay in. They stay in the shape that they are right now. Uh, I know Dion's having a little bit of trouble with an ankle injury. Um, that he was. He didn't want surgery. He wanted the contract. He wanted to rehab it. Uh, and so he he's not operating at full capacity right now. But that's okay. And then. Uh, for all their, for everything that they accomplished last year, they also didn't have Justice Winslow for the bulk of it, and so right. adding him, I think, makes them uh, a lot raises their ceiling and their best case scenario a lot a lot higher. Uh, worst case scenario, uh, Dion and James Johnson and those guys just pushed really hard for contracts and contract years, and now that they've got their long term money, you see a little bit of regression. Uh, the Kelly Olynyk signing, which was Miami's like big signing, doesn't really work out as well as they envisioned. I'm not a huge Kelly Olynyk guy. Uh, he he's a productive player, but I feel like there are so many other players in the league that can do uh, what he does, which is you know just shoot and rebound a little and not block any shots or anything. Like if you go look at like Mike Mascala's per 36 numbers, they're like roughly the same as Kelly Olynyk's and Kelly Olynyk is making, you know, like 12, 15 million dollars right now, which is insane. Um, you know, Magruder, Roddy Magruder uh, just had a stress fracture, stress fracture in his knee. He's going to miss the first 2-3 months of the season. That has an impact on them. Uh, I I could see them winning, you know, 40 games and missing the playoffs if uh, everything broke wrong for them. You know, I mean, how do you feel about Kelly Olynyk? How do you feel about the the changes that Miami really made this offseason? Well, I don't. Yeah, Olynyk is fine. I mean, he's not bad. He's not good. Or no, he's not great. I mean, he's just a solid, capable NBA player. Um, so I think we can add a guy like him. Great, you, you add a guy like him. He's probably overpaid. Um, but to me, the Miami Heat are are interesting because who the heck are they? Right, like. I think it was 11 and 30 is what they started the season. Like some, some crazy nuts, terrible, awful thing happened and the wheels are falling off. And all of a sudden it's like a switch turns on and and the opposite thing happens. Right. So who are they to me is the question. Are they, uh, do they split the difference? And if they do, they're a 500 team or do they look more like the team that played the last 40 games of the NBA season and if they do, then they're a 45-47 win team, maybe even a little bit better. Um, yeah, I, so I think in terms of their best-case scenario, yeah, they could win 45, 47, 48 games. That's possible. Um, but I also think they've got a couple key guys who've had some nagging injuries, particularly Drogic, who's been um, kind of hit and miss throughout his career. Those kind of things could cost them. And then I think you have uh, a guy like Winslow who had a pretty solid rookie season, uh, missed basically all of last season, if I'm remembering correctly. That That's a key piece to try to throw into the mix. Obviously, they've got a, a very good coach in Spolstra who has navigated the biggest personalities an NBA coach can navigate. But, yeah, I, I think they could certainly – they could certainly struggle the way they did last year because, you know, I don't think personally I have a real firm read on why they, they were so bad for those first 40 games. So they're a bit of a wild card. I can definitely see them being really solid and being a team who can push somebody in the second round. Um, but I could see them being very middle of the road over the course of 82 games if they fall into a slump uh, the way they did a season ago. In terms of their important key guys, uh, who do you think is important and who do you think is most intriguing? So I think their most important guy is James Johnson. Uh, they're not, if you look at their roster, they're not very deep at power forward. 
to begin with. And then you look at what he was able to accomplish last year, you know, operating kind of as a, a point forward for their offense, running pick and rolls, which is not something we ever saw him do in Toronto. Uh, he allegedly lost 30 pounds, you know, and attributed a lot of that to the Miami uh, strength and conditioning team and getting him into really great shape. I, I think he was the, he's kind of like a, a, a middle-class Draymond in the East for Miami. And like, that was a huge deal for them. And so uh, if he doesn't replicate that performance for any reason, if he's hurt or if he's, uh, you know, more out of shape or um, if, you know, a guy like Justice coming back kind of messes with his role offensively, uh, I think that he could suffer as a result of that. So I think he's re- that's why he's so important uh, to this team. As for, like, intriguing, I think it's Josh Richardson. Uh, we don't really know what Josh Richardson is. Uh, is. He was drafted as a point guard, but he's 6'6", so he's big enough to play on the wing. Um, he's a shooter and a scorer, but, you know, can he create for uh, can he create for others at the NBA level? Like, maybe that's why. Uh, that's the question kind of surrounding him. If he can, then he can be kind of like a supersized point guard or, or the off guard. If he can't, then, like, maybe he is more suited to playing on the wing and uh, defending guys that are a little bit bigger than he is. And so uh, in Miami committed to him uh, just a couple weeks ago. They, they gave him the uh, four-year, $42 million extension. And so uh, I'm really curious to see, now that they've committed to him long-term, like what their plan for him uh, is in the future. Uh, you know, who, who do you think? Because, you know, I, I think that, Richardson is is really intriguing, and I, I kind of like him. I think that that's a guy I would, I would like the Pistons to acquire if possible. But you know, this Miami team is so there's no star players. It's it's they're very uh, they're very like some of their parts team. So you know, who who are you intrigued by? Yeah. So th- really, I had a really hard time narrowing down the win- intrigue part because to me, Winslow remains super intriguing because obviously we didn't really see him last year. He's a guy Pistons fans have sort of paid attention to because of the the year he was drafted and the controversy about should he have been a Piston and, and would the Pistons be better off for having, having taking him. Uh, you know, he, he played his first year, just he was a, just a solid rookie, right? Who he is as a player remains to be seen, so that's interesting to me. I, I co-sign about everything you just said about Richardson. Um, I also co-sign everything you said about um, – uh, about Johnson, and so he was kind of my third guy. Those those three guys, to me, super interesting stuff. And I, th- I think you could kind of throw um, Tyler Johnson into that conversation as well. Uh, so lots of really young, interesting players in, in Miami, really, to have all of those guys at your disposal to sort of pick from in terms of who do you want your core to be. That's a, that's a pretty nice luxury. In terms of the most important guy, I still say Drogic, and I know that's sort of the default uninteresting answer. Uh, but I feel like he's really the, the key cog. He's the guy who's got the experience to lead an offense in spite of all these other interesting parts. And, and I think if he plays well, um, the Heat have a much better chance of avoiding that, that sort of slumpy start the way they, they started last year. So I know that's kind of a boring answer, but but to me, Drogic remains their most important guy. Um Ranking the coach, to me, Spolstra has proven himself to be a very good coach. I was skeptical of him, as I think probably a lot of people were the first half of the season, but I think um, he he proved that he's got his stuff together. He knows what he's doing. Um, what do you think about Spolstra? Other stuff to, to add on to that? It's weird, right, because I, I also agree. I think Spolstra is a, a, a great to elite level NBA coach. But if you if you want to give him you know all the uh, a bulk of the credit for the 30 and 11 finish, you have to ask the question about well you know how did how did this this uh, great to elite coach uh, coach a team to an 11 and 30 start, you know and so I, I think he's a good player or a good coach. Uh, you saw kind of what he did with with Wayne Ellington last year, a guy who can really only uh, can really only shoot, but he made a value a very valuable part of the rotation by, you know, emphasizing only his strengths. And so yeah, he does a good job of putting guys in position to succeed. Is You're just forced to wonder 
where a lot of that success was for the first part of last year. And maybe that was part of, you know, they were bringing a lot of different pieces together. You had to tweak things. You didn't didn't really know what you had in regards to, like, Dion and James Johnson. And you re-signed Tyler Johnson, but you don't really know, like, kind of what he is, a point guard or a shooting guard. And you're still getting used to, to having Whiteside around. And you're, used, you're trying to integrate Justice Winslow, and then he gets hurt. And so there, there's a lot of moving uh, moving pieces that you're trying to hit so uh, it, it's excusable but it does kind of make me wonder about you know how good Spo is as a coach I mean, and you know and going along with that Miami has so many moving pieces they have so many interchangeable pieces but they don't really have like that they don't really have a power forward like a, a guy that you would look at as like a star starting power forward and I think that's the, kind of the one thing that they're missing next to uh, Hassan Whiteside. is kind of a guy who can take a little bit of defensive pressure off Whiteside while still, you know, managing to stretch the floor. Um, who do you who do you think they should try to, you know, get in, uh, in during the season? Yeah, so I don't know so much about who they're going to get, but so Zach Lowe floated this just this week, I think, um, potentially looking at dumping Winslow plus one of their big contracts simply because they have luxury tax considerations. And to me, wow, that would be pretty shocking, wouldn't it? I mean, Winslow's a guy who they were huge on when they drafted him. We've talked about the fact they, did, they didn't get anything out of him last year due to the injury. Um, that would be a strange move for, for me to make, but I, I felt like I had to mention it because it, to me it was just so shocking to see Lowe say that. And Lowe is a guy who... I, I listen and read low whenever he's writing and talking. I, I find his analysis pretty pretty spot on most of the time. So that was particularly interesting. I think uh, it'll be interesting to see like if they want to try to go small, right? Um, I think obviously they have a long-term issue at backup center. I'm not sure what they're really doing there. Um, you're right, power forward's a little thin. Hey, just re-signed Udonis Haslam, though. I think he's been in the league for about as long as I've been alive. Yeah, great, great luck um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it'd be interesting to see, you know, does Justice Winslow slide over and play some power forward? Um, and if so, who plays small forward in that lineup, right? Um, so to me, that's where their, their questions are. They've got lots of really interesting perimeter stuff, um, but they've got some real questions in, in terms of their big man rotation, which I, I kind of see as their limiting factor. I think I really like what they've got going on in the perimeter. With the exception of Deion Waiters, I'm just not a huge Waiters fan. Um, but to me, that, that big man rotation, in spite of the fact that they've tried to shore it up with Olenek, and maybe he plays some backup center too in, in sort of some weird small ball lineups, they're, they're, just, they're just thin. And so I think that has to be their... Uh, their their target in terms of trade considerations. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, ooh, I'm a backup, a lineup with Kelly Olynyk as your backup center. I don't know how you you know defend the rim or rebound uh, and it, with, any, <laughs> with any effectiveness in that case. But that's kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, I, I think anytime you're relying on Olynyk for any of that stuff, you're you're not doing it right. You're doing it wrong. So. So, so do you think this is a playoff team? I know we've, we've questioned a lot of their roster and, uh, you know, questioned a lot of their offseason decisions, but they, they did finish the year 30-11, and 11, and this is a pretty weak conference. Yeah, I mean, I've got them at 41 wins, so to me that's going to be good enough for the playoffs in the East because I think, I think in all likelihood we're going to see a losing team or two sneak their way in. Um, so to me, yeah, I've got them in the playoffs at 41 wins. How about you? I've got them at 43 wins and in the playoffs. Uh, I don't. I don't think we'll see a, a losing team in the playoffs this year. I think 41 will be will be the cutoff, and I think there are enough teams that are good enough to get to that 41 uh, win plateau. But uh, yeah, no, I don't see Miami's ceiling being uh, much much higher than that. Much higher than you know 41 wins. So I've got them at 43. Yeah, and so that puts. Uh... The Vegas odds, I don't think I mentioned, they, they've got them at 500, so I I found myself agreeing with Vegas. I, th I think that's a pretty pretty, uh, pretty lame line for Vegas, to be perfectly honest. Pretty safe. Um, 43 wins, though, certainly possible uh, if things play well. Any other closing comments about the Heat before we move on and talk about the Hornets? No, I think, I think we've talked a lot about them. Cool. All right, so the Hornets. This is a team that, that really interests me. Um, two seasons ago sort of their coming out party, right? Kemba Walker, 
proved that he was the real deal and, and could carry a team. Last season, regression, and, and the team struggled and fumbled their way to a losing season. And then, of course, the, the big news out of Charlotte is, is signing Dwight Howard to a massive contract, at least in terms of dollars. Uh, so to me, a, a particularly interesting and potentially quite volatile team. Uh, in terms of their best case, in terms of their worst case, what's your take on the Hornets this season? So, in the best case scenario, they they can integrate guy Dwight, and in the worst case scenario, they they can't integrate Dwight. Like that that's right. really what what it's based upon. Um, Kimball Walker is going to be good regardless. I think he, at at this point he's proven uh, he is who he is, which is one of the is an upper middle tier uh, point guard in the NBA. And uh, I think if there, if the thing that is interesting is that if there is one place that Dwight Howard, Dwight Howard could still succeed, it is in Charlotte. You know, next to Steve Clifford, playing a defense that he knows and is comfortable with, uh, in a role that you know hopefully he'll be more accepting of after his you know this is his fourth team in you know five years or whatever it is, and they and if. In that worst-case scenario, they have a very capable backup for him in Cody Zeller, and so he has to kind of realize like this is this is the end of the line for me as a as a starting center in the NBA unless I do you know exactly what's being asked of me, and so I'm I'm looking forward to seeing if that experiment works. I won't say I think it's going to work because I honestly don't know and I think it's impossible to predict. But I'm very much uh, looking forward to Charlotte and seeing how uh, how they do. But yeah, if if Dwight works, they could win up to 45 games. If Dwight doesn't work, you know they could they could lose you know 50 games. They could be a, a 35, 32 win team. Yeah, I mean I I almost co-sign completely, except that I think they could be a little better than that if if um, if Dwight really fits. I think. Some of the injuries that they have to start the season uh, set them back a little bit. Um, if I remember correctly, Batum is out. And then I want to say Kid Gilchrist might miss the opener, something along those lines. Um, so that hurts a little bit. Um, but, yeah, I think it's all about Dwight. I think, to me, Dwight Howard is an enigma because there's no reason – like if if you just look at skill set and talent, there's no reason why at at his age he still can't be a productive NBA player. But for whatever reason, um, personality conflicts, wanting the ball too much, not being committed defensively, not being committed to scheme. I mean, take your pick, right? Like he just has had such a a disappointing conclusion to what really has been a pretty fantastic NBA career. I mean, in his prime. He was just an absolute beast, uh, and, and I think you know Van Van the Van Gundy years in Orlando, just a fantastic, fantastic big men to watch who really relished being a big man, right? Who really relished playing around the rim and and dunking on people and improving his post game. Uh, yeah, but to me, like if, if that ego can mesh with the fact that this is Kemba Walker's team, and then I think, yeah, they have a, a chance to be pretty good. And, and if they get back to full strength in a reasonable amount of time, I think they could potentially challenge for home court in the first round. I think they're, that's sort of a, a bit of a long shot, but I think it's possible. But, you know, after what we saw out of them a year ago, too, there's a real chance that this two years ago uh, Charlotte Hornets team, they just overachieved a bit. And this really isn't a roster that's better than 35 wins, 37 wins in a normal season. So, I mean, I largely agree. I think 35 to 45 wins is a pretty accurate assessment of what they can be with an outside chance that they're a little better if everybody gets healthy quick and Dwight Howard really, really fits. Yeah, um, I'd be more inclined to agree with you about the, the upper bound of, the, of their ceiling if they could push beyond 45 wins, I'd be more inclined to agree with you if Batum, you know, wasn't going to miss you know, eight to 12 weeks or whatever. Yeah. They think they were targeting Thanksgiving or something. The last I saw yeah, that's a, a month and a so half hurts. of him yeah, not playing. Yeah. That's like 15 games. You, you would need him to take you. If even, even if everything's working well, you're going to need him or a guy like that playing at that level to, to take you beyond 45 wins. Yeah. That, that's a completely fair point. Yeah. 
Uh, who do you think their most important guy is? Obviously, we both talked about Dwight Howard a lot, but who's their most important player? So it's funny. The we talked about Dwight, you know, just to open up and how he's so important and, you know, first ballot Hall of Famer and everything. And his backup, Cody Zeller, is the most important player on the Hornets. <laughs> I think they were something like 3-17 uh, and 17 without Zeller in the lineup last year. And, you know, the big part of that is none of their other backup centers, Roy Hibbert and uh, Frank Kaminsky, played very well. And uh, I think they had Spencer Hawes, too. And, like, that was also a disaster. So uh, having a guy like that, a guy who who does know his role in Cody Zeller, who, you know, sets hard screens and rolls hard every time and rebounds and does all the dirty work and is an excellent defensive player. Uh, having a guy like that be your, uh, your golden parachute in case Dwight doesn't work out. That's really important to this team. So he needs to stay healthy. And, uh, you know, if Dwight Howard doesn't work out, you know, he needs to start and he, he needs to continue fulfilling the role that he's filled on this team for the last couple of years and be a very integral part of what the Hornets do on both ends of the court. Yeah, and that stat you cited about the, the wins and losses when Zeller didn't play, that's shocking. I mean, I knew that, but even just hearing you say it again, that's just shocking. I think, I don't know, what's your read? Is that Does he have a bigger impact on the defensive end of the floor? Is that why he's so important or is, is it also that dirty work he does on offense from your perspective that makes him such an integral part of the team? I think for this team and for that situation last year, it was more important to have him in there defensively only because if you looked at his backups, his backups were Roy Hibbert and Spencer Hawes and they played some Frank Kaminsky at the five. None of those guys are where you need to be defensively uh, in the NBA uh, in, you know, in 2017 uh, the Hornets fell apart in the fourth quarter of a lot of games uh, without Zeller in there, manning the middle, you know, helping them, you know, preserve leads. And so I think that's that's a very big part of uh, of his value to the Hornets. Um, yeah, I, you just you you hope that Dwight can be a better version of what Zeller was supposed to give you last year. And, you know, if that doesn't work for, you know, the multitude of reasons we've already talked about, then, you know, you hope you have the original Zeller and that he's you know, just as effective as he was, you know, last year when he was able to play. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, you've made a really good case for Zeller. I think is the most important guy. Uh, again, I sort of went with the, the common knowledge and that's Kemba Walker to me. He's the guy who, was the driving force of their success two seasons ago. He's a guy who's emerged as a top top 10 point guard, probably. I think you can put him in the top 10, at least make a strong case for that. So to me, he's still extremely important uh, to, to their success and, and to how far they go this season. Um, in terms of their intriguing player, so I'm not going to rehash all this, but to me, it's Dwight Howard. And to me, he's just a, he's a fascinating player as a whole for all the reasons we've said. And I think he's a fascinating fit in, in Charlotte. And there are lots of ways that this could go spectacularly well and spectacularly terrible. So to me, he's their most interesting guy. Uh, you've got a different take on this. So, so tell me about who you think their most intriguing player. is. So for me, their most intriguing player is Jeremy Lamb. And that's because they need somebody to step up uh, for this team in Batum's absence. And we've been kind of waiting on uh, Lamb to put it all together you know, since he entered the league. Uh, you know, he's part of the Harden trade. He was the guy who was going to make the make the Harden trade, you know, kind of uh, fair in a way. That hasn't happened. You know, that's that still remains a ridiculous deal. But uh, if he can, if this is the year he can put it all together, that would be a huge boost to the Hornets. But I don't, I don't think it'll be that year. But it'll be really fun to watch him try because he's going to get every opportunity now for the first, you know, month and a half of the season. Now that Batum's out, um, he's he's going to be able to, he's going to be needed to handle the ball. Uh, if they play him next to, you know, MKG and Marvin Williams, they're going to need him to create shots for himself. Uh, Kemba can't be relied to do that. Uh, can't, Kemba can't be the only guy on the floor who can create shots for you. And so, you know, Watching him, you know, sink or swim for perhaps the the final time where we have any expectations for Jeremy Lamb. That that's why he's so intriguing to me. Yeah, and I think he's got to make shots. I mean, his three point percentage 
and this was true for a number of guys in Charlotte last year, interesting, but his three-point shooting has just fallen off a cliff. He shot 28% last year after shooting in the mid-30s in his first uh, first three seasons. Um, you can't have that out of a starting shooting guard in today's NBA. Uh, he's got to do better than 28%. Um, there's no question about it. But you're absolutely right. The fact that Batum is out until Thanksgiving or later, this is his chance, right? This is the chance to prove if he's a starter or just this intriguing guy who, who never really figured it all out. So, uh, yeah, good points about about Jeremy Lamb. So coaching, um, in terms of ranking this coach, my comment on this is we're about to find out what kind of a coach he is, right? Uh, you've got Dwight Howard, who has been the the locker room destroyer, kind of in a way that uh, DeMarcus Cousins has been as he's moved around the NBA. In terms of X's and O's, you know, I, I don't have strong feelings here. I think last season, I didn't see a ton of them other than when they played the Pistons. But anytime you see a team like that regress, you have to question coaching. So to me, I have sort of a question mark here with uh, this. This is kind of your chance to prove if you're yeah if you're the real so, deal or not. What are you, what's your take on the the coaching situation? It, since I live in North Carolina, I watch far more Charlotte Hornets games than perhaps I should, sure. and so I th- I think Steve Clifford's a good coach. Uh, last mm-hmm. year, he was a, a victim of circumstance a lot of the time with with the injuries to Zeller. They just weren't the same team uh, without him. Uh, he plays, he's a Van Gundy disciple, and so his teams play in a very similar style to Stan Van Gundy's teams. Uh, they don't turn the ball over. They they operate really well in transition defense. They they rebound the crap out of the ball. And, you know, they their offense isn't necessarily as exciting or inventive as you'd, you'd perhaps like it to be. So in, in that way, I think Steve Clifford has a lot of the same strengths and weaknesses as Stan Van Gundy does. Uh, his teams always are... Uh, higher defensively in like the defensive ratings than you'd think they would be just by looking at their collection of individual talent. But uh, they also, you know, struggle to score in late game situations without uh, Kemba step back threes or something like that. And so I think he's a good coach, not necessarily a great one, but, but definitely a good coach. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting too. They've got in Frank Kaminsky, a guy who, they played too much last season. I don't know that they had a choice, but I think they played too much and they, they let them shoot the yeah, ball. Yeah, they did not much. have a choice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if he gets any better, right? That The development of young players, that's the thing I constantly harp on. I don't know that they have a, a real choice this year either. I think they're going to have to play him quite a bit of minutes. Um, but he's he's the guy, Frank Kaminsky's a guy who... If he develops, I think that's credit to Clifford because he he looked like a bit of a hot mess out there at times a season ago. Uh, In terms of the playoffs, I I have him in the playoffs and I have him at 41 wins. So I sort of split the difference between what I see as their best and worst case. Vegas is high on the Charlotte Hornets. I guess that's the Dwight Howard effect. They've got him at 45 and 37, and I think that's that uh, high. Wow. that's pretty rosy. Yeah. yeah. What's what's uh, your win total and, and final final thoughts on the Hornets? Yeah, I've got them in the same place you do at, at 41 wins and, and in the playoffs. Uh, this is really the team that uh, I would use as a barometer for where the Pistons are at. So if they're better than the Hornets, then I think you know they're in a fairly safe spot with regards to you know making the playoffs if, if they're worse than the Hornets I think that's their cutoff I, I don't think they, they make the playoffs if they're worse than the Hornets yeah that's a fantastic way of looking at it I think that's uh that's very well said and very well put and a good way to move on to talk about two teams that I couldn't care less about to be totally honest with everybody Atlanta and Orlando just do not interest me very much so uh, I'm going to lean pretty heavy on last here. What do, what do you think? Let's start with Atlanta. Um, what do you think their best case is, and, and how bad could things get down down in Atlanta? For so Hawks? Atlanta's priorities are pretty messed up, right? If if you're Atlanta, you're rebuilding. You, you don't want to lose, but you don't also necessarily mind it, especially before the new lottery rules kick in. So the best case for Atlanta is they get the number one pick, and they get a shot at a transformational talent, the likes of which they haven't really had in that town since, you know, Dominique Wilkins or 
Joe Johnson if you want to be extremely, extremely kind. Uh, <laughs> I, th- I think like if you if you paired you know a Luka Doncic or a uh, Michael Porter, you know, with some of the guys they already have and with that coach, I think that that pert- that pretends well for Atlanta, you know, two three years down the line. But they're probably gonna be really bad for the next couple of years. Uh, in the worst case scenario, uh, you know, Coach Budenholzer is uh, you know too focused on the here and now and he plays the vets more than he plays the kids and you know somehow they end up with like 32 wins due to you know them they're they're trying the entire year uh, during the last part of the season when other teams are losing they're still trying and so they they end up with like the number seven or eight pick instead of the number two or three pick and then all of a sudden you look up and they're they're orlando the team we're about to talk about next where uh they can't they can't get that transformational star because they they won't fall far enough in the draft to do so yeah and so what makes this particularly odd to me is it's it's like what the heck are they doing right like okay so you've got these young guys Collins is particularly interesting um Prince is is kind of interesting as well and then you go out and get Ilyasova and Deadman two guys who are like solid rotation players on a playoff team right but they're old and they don't factor at all into your future so the the question is why well you look at why it, go get those you look guys? at the contracts they signed though they're pretty short term deals i think Ilyasova signed a one year deal and deadman signed yeah. a, a two year deal but with an option on the second year and so you know those are those are guys i think uh, the front office signed to kind of mollify the coach because Budenholzer is a really competitive guy and he wants to win and he wants veterans who are going to help him do that but uh the team doesn't necessarily, you know, need to do that for the long term. And so you give them these guys, you say, hey, like, okay, here are some vets you can play during the regular season. And then, you know, if Deadman plays really well, perhaps you can trade him at the deadline. And Ilyasova's gone next year, regardless of whether or not you can trade him at the deadline. And so uh, you, you, you satisfy both the short-term and the long-term vision for your team with, with signings yeah. like those in my mind. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think, you know, to me, the when we talk about the trade machine, to me, Deadman and Ilyasova are potentially guys you sign with the intent of trying to move them for future second rounders or something. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, they're, they're competent players who, worst case scenario, they're not signed long term and, and maybe your young guys pick up a few veteran tricks. And they're both guys who you know where you're getting, right? right. Like you, Ilyasova is who he is and Deadman is who he is. And, and those are very clear cut roles that you can count on those two guys playing. So I guess that part of it makes sense. But, you know, the way that this team has has disassembled and sort of fallen apart over the last couple of years, I mean, a couple of years ago, we're talking about a team who was threatening in the Eastern Conference, right? They didn't perform well in the playoffs, but they looked like they were the next team to beat. And, and here we are now talking about the fact that this is maybe a team winning something in the 20s. I guess, you know, their big bets were Bazemore and Schroeder. Neither of those guys have really done what they were expected to do. And and so I guess that's, that's I guess, just the way it is in the NBA sometimes, right? You make bets on young guys who look promising, and then and then things don't work out, and, and you're stuck sort of in this treadmill of 20s and 30s with, with no real clear path forward. Yeah, I mean, another large part of that in my mind is – you know, you lose Al Horford and Paul Millsap with no return in back-to-back years. Right. Like, yeah. That'll that'll that's what, that's any any team back. But I mean, there's Absolutely. not there's not no return, right? They have John Collins, who's a really intriguing and important player uh, to me for on this team. Uh, he was he was a really good player in the ACC. Um, the advanced numbers, you know, loved his production. Very productive player. Um, and you hope that you know under the tutelage of of Coach Budenholzer that he'll become, you know, this this wide-ranging, you know, stretch uh, power forward defender who can, you know, knock down threes and rebound and you don't lose anything. You're hoping basically that Bud can turn him into, into Serge Ibaka before Serge Ibaka aged mysteriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, you've got another guy in Torian Prince who's also really intriguing. Um, he was he played extremely well in the playoffs last year, which is very surprising to me and a lot of other people. But uh, you know, Budenholzer has a, a penchant for turning uh, undervalued wing players into into things. You know, 
Tim Hardaway Jr. should probably send Coach Bud like 15% of that giant check sure. he, he signed with the Knicks yep. for doing that for him. And so uh, having another guy like that um, under Coach Bud, I'm really interested to see you know what kind of strides he makes this year. Uh, he's going to have the freedom to do a lot of stuff offensively since they're going to be so bad. I want to see uh, how his game expands you know, with that knowledge. Yeah, to me, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I co-sign on those guys as players. I think Schroeder's also important. I think it's it's make or break time for Schroeder, right? Either either he's going to become a starting point guard or he's not. And right now, to me, he's not. He's he's a sixth man. And uh, I, I think the question for the Hawks is, can you and do you want to move on from Bazemore and Schroeder? Because those two guys just haven't worked out. And to me, if the answer to that is yes, then I think maybe you – try to do that sooner rather than later, although I'm not sure that's going to be particularly easy. Bazemore's contract in particular is going to be a tough pill for, for anyone to swallow, given the fact that I mean, he's essentially regressed, right? I mean, he hasn't even he hasn't taken any real strides uh, since signing that big contract. Yeah, I think he was so. hurt a little bit last year as well, and he never really got off on the right foot. I actually think it was an ankle injury, so he literally never got off <laughs> on the right foot. <laughs> Punny. Yeah. But... uh <laughs> I think if they if you ask the Hawks, I think they would they would prefer to trade Bazemore uh, over Schroeder, if only because I think it's I think it's easier to imagine a world in which Schroeder is like a starting level point guard than it is to imagine a world where like Kent Bazemore is uh, like a top fifteen wing player, you know? Yeah, and he's paid like he paid, you know, he's, he's paid, paid like, like a top is, fifteen yeah. wing player, and so yeah, uh, yeah. That's I don't funny. know how they trade him though with that contract. That seems pretty difficult to me. I mean, maybe that's, yeah. Uh, I feel like you're you're kind of stuck with it. I just don't know who's who wants that contract, right? I yeah. Mean, I mean, maybe a couple of years down the line, when when it's an expiring deal, like then you could convince yeah. somebody to take it. But uh, it's not like they're going to be needing cap space anytime soon. So I don't know. At this point, you just hold on to him and try and hope you can uh, revert him to his previous form. I think. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree with you in terms of coaching. I think uh, Boonholzer is a good coach. He's got a solid pedigree, unproven in the playoffs, but you know most coaches are. Um, ultimately, though, I think this is a pretty bad team. Um, Vegas likes him more than I do. Vegas has him at 28 wins. I've got him at 24, although I think you may have talked me into them being potentially a little bit better than that. Uh, what's your final take on the Hawks? Uh, I think they win 25, 26 games, uh, so enough to hit that over I think but uh, that's a lot of the function again of Coach Bud uh, Coach Bud is going to have this team you know ready to go and competing night in night out whether or not the, the talent level you know matches anything that he can come up with like that's the huge question um, speaking of teams with like you know variable levels of talent let's talk about the Orlando Magic yeah and you know I don't have strong thoughts about the Magic they to me they're they're not the worst team in the NBA by any stretch of the imagination, but they're one of the least interesting to me personally. So I'm going to count on you to carry this team of two. Talk us through the Magic's best-case scenario and their worst-case scenario. So in the best-case scenario for the Magic, uh, Alfred Payton remains the guy that he you know, continues to show that he is at, towards the end of the year. Um, he had a bunch of triple-doubles to close the year. He, he looked more confident attacking... Um, defenders when they went under on screens and uh, I think the other big key for them is if Aaron Gordon accepts kind of his NBA destiny as like a a slasher role man and not necessarily a a three-point shooter or a a guy who can create with the ball in his hands I think that'll do them a lot of good they also are paying like 30 million dollars in big man money and like they they can't keep that up they got to trade Vucevic or Biombo I don't know I don't know to who and I don't know for what but you can't have uh, $30 million of unplayable big man on your roster. Um, so in the best-case scenario, you know, Peyton and Gordon kind of figure it out, and they look like a team that can make the playoffs next year. And in the worst-case scenario, um, Peyton and Gordon play just well enough to garner huge extensions and then don't look like they're – and then don't look like uh, above – uh, role player level NBA players and Orlando's like stuck in the quagmire again. Yeah, their big man situation is really kind of a, a cluster. I mean, lots of money going to guys who, as you mentioned, aren't, aren't doing what you need them to do. 
I'm I'm also intrigued. So you talked about Peyton and, and Gordon, and those to me really are the, the key guys for them. But what are they doing at shooting guard and small forward? I, I don't – I look at their roster, and I just don't understand what they're trying to do. What's your take on the shooting guard and small forward situation? In so they guard? got – they've still got Evan Fournier, and they've still got uh, – and they signed Jonathan Simmons. So they've got pl- players – I like both of those guys in a vacuum – but I don't think they're able to make the difference on a team that's as bad as the, I think the Magic are going to be, right? Like sure. Fournier is a really good catch and shoot guy who can who can be uh, like a tertiary ball handler. He keeps the ball moving, but he doesn't create offense. And so when he's paired with a point guard like Peyton, who you know teams can go under with and. Uh, don't doesn't offer him enough space to get the, his shot off. I think that makes him look worse. As far as Jonathan Simmons, I like Jonathan Simmons. Um, he's a really athletic guy. Um, he plays really tough defense. I just wonder what he'll look like outside of the Spurs system. We've uh, we've seen a lot of guys you know, leave that Spurs system and then just not look as good because uh, Greg Popovich is a wizard. And so you know, I think that's how they cover the shooting guard small forward position. They've also got John Isaacs, uh, Jonathan Isaacs out of Florida State, their rookie, who is uh, 6'11", but I still think of him as a small forward because he's got the skill set of a small forward. He's kind of, I'm not saying he is Kevin Durant, but he's like Durant in that way where uh, he's a really good uh shooter coming off of screens which is like not necessarily what you want your 611 guy doing but that's that's what his skill set <laughs> is and you hope that Frank Vogel who is a good coach but not necessarily a great one can do is kind of make him uh, a better player defensively give him some of that uh intensity uh that, that Paul George shows occasionally on the on the defensive end and I know I just compared Jonathan Isaacs to Kevin Durant and Paul George, and, the, and that's not—he's <laughs> not that type of guy. But I think uh, with with time and effort, I think he could be, you know, a, a step below that. Yeah, well, I mean, in fairness to a guy like Austin Day, he was also a very tall, lanky perimeter guy with the body of Kevin yeah, Durant. You, yeah, as you well, just hit he... the uh, the floor on Jonathan <laughs> Isaacs' uh, potential. That's exactly. <laughs> we we know we know how that can go uh, as Pistons fans. Uh, unfortunately. Um, you talked about Isaacs and Peyton. You have most important and most intriguing guy. So, so to me, Peyton, th- the question I can't help but ask is, is he this generation's Rajon Rondo? Like, is that kind of his ceiling as a, as a point guard in the NBA? Well, I don't know. The answer is no, but that's only because he's not nearly as good as Rondo was at the height of his powers. Um, sure. There are a lot of point guards who can't, shoot um but rondo was one of the few who was able to uh, use the uh, other skills that he had like namely his court vision and his his defensive acuity to you know still be a relatively important part of a championship team uh, you think about another guy like that was was jason kidd who really only taught himself to spot up shoot towards the end of his career right yeah and he played until he yeah was exactly 50, so uh alfred payton is not at that level of, of talent. He doesn't see the court like those two guys do. But uh, could you turn him into perhaps like a taller version of Ish Smith? Like, sure. Uh, he could he could be a guy who, you know, doesn't really shoot threes all that well, but does a good job pushing the pace, uh, tries on defense as an effort defender, um, attacks the rim and the pick and roll. Um, I, I, there are... You know, there are other guys in the league that Alfred Payton could emulate to have success besides Rondo. Besides Rondo. Fair enough. Um, as we close out our conversation here about the Magic, uh, I'm glad you noted this in our trade machine notes. Uh, one big man with V to another big man, V. Jonas Valanchunas, whose name I always pronounced incorrectly some trade rumors like uh zach Lowe, maybe he's the source of the rumor uh does that does that trade and tell the people what it is because i've sort of butchered it but tell the people what it is and if it makes sense for either or both so teams. the trade i think was a straight up swap of uh Jonas valanciunas for uh vujicic is it vujicic or vujicic Oh, Don't okay. ask it's, me, man. I think it's Vucevic, but I'm not I think sure. it's Vucevic too. But we're yeah, we're gonna stick with that. So that guy. Uh, <laughs> I don't know 
if that trade really makes sense. That's really just you're swapping one problem for another and hoping that, you know, your coach is the one who can finally reach this guy that hasn't been able to be reached in his NBA career. Uh, Vucevic's main thing is that he doesn't, you know, protect the rim or uh, play extremely well in, as the role man. And those are the two things I think that a lot of big men that that you need to be able to do as a big man in today's NBA. And so trading him for another big man who doesn't really do those things is, I don't know if that's the best idea. I mean, Vucevic is more of a, a, he wants to pick and pop. He wants to shoot 20 footers, not threes, 20 footers. So he's uh, shooting inefficient shots. What, what Jonas wants to do is he wants to post up which are also inefficient shots, but they're closer in, and I think he's a little bit better at them. And so, yeah, I don't know who really, quote-unquote, wins that trade. I think one element that uh, Zach Lowe pointed out was that uh, Vucevic has a shorter contract than Valanciunas, and that would be a reason to do this trade, so that you're, you're out of, uh, of one of those guys' contracts earlier than the other. Yeah, to me, I think you articulated that pretty well. Neither one of those guys is a 30-minute-per-night sort of big man, and, and neither one solves the problem for the other team. So maybe it's just fun to talk about because of their last names at this point. There's I'm definitely sure. one element of um, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so be- before we sign off, Frank Vogel, um, a guy who got a raw deal, I think, in Indiana personally, just my opinion, uh, I think he's a pretty good coach. Um, I, I think there's some limitations, uh, but I think he's a pretty good coach. I'm not sure that uh, that's necessarily going to show this season because I, I think the roster has some real problems that I don't think any coach is going to be able to overcome by himself. Uh, what's your take on, on Vogel in Orlando? Uh, I think, I, I don't know if, I think he got a raw deal a little bit in Indiana, but I think that's also been overstated slightly. Uh if you if you butt heads with the front office as to like what the direction of the team is going to be and you're you're not successful at the level that they weren't after uh, that that magical run to the Eastern Conference Finals i don't think you should be yeah. surprised when when you find yourself being shown the door um, that being said i think Volga's a good coach uh, i think he's a a good defensive coach he's certainly a better coach than Orlando has had since uh SVG left. They've been going through a bunch of retreads. They, you know, they had they had Jacques Vaughn for a while. Scott Skiles came out of retirement to coach them for half a season. You know, uh, so I think having Vogel in as a good coach and giving him some measure of uh, offering them some measure of stability from the coaching position, I think, is what the most important thing for that situation is. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So. Uh, Close out the podcast then with wins and losses. Vegas is harsh on Orlando, particularly yeah, harsh. Orlando's no fun to bet have, on. I think that's what it is. <laughs> that's That could very well be it. They, Vegas has them winning 25 games. I think they're a little better than that. I, I have them at 27 wins. Uh, what do you think they're going to do in terms of wins Oh, wow. I have them at 35 wins. But, you know, after talking about them, I probably need to reconsider that. I mean, they're... well, Jordan had him high too, and we have Jordan's notes, even though we don't have yeah. Jordan. Um, Jordan had him at thirty-three and a half, so he, there's some things he likes as well that that I'm not seeing. So may, maybe you're seeing things there, though. There, uh, I think their talent level is like their collective talent level isn't that poor. The pieces just don't fit together, and they don't have that uh, that's that that talent that like supersedes other other teams talent the it's very rarely it's very rare that orlando will have the best player on the floor whenever they play another team and that that's a problem you know yeah and they don't have anybody who's like particularly good right aaron gordon maybe he could be but and they added terrence ross i don't remember if they added him this summer over the season he's another guy we didn't mention at all because he's he's really easy to overlook just a solid competent swig man right so they do have they do have several guys who are definitely good enough to be rotation pieces in the NBA, but they don't have the guy, right? Like they don't have a single guy who's really their guy. And if it is Alfred Payton, that's great, but he's not going to put up a bunch of points for you. 
he's the kind of point guard who's going to make his killing by making people around him better. And there's just not a whole lot to make better, and especially at the, at the big That's a really spot. good point. So, there, there is not a whole lot to make better on this Orlando yeah. team. Well, and that's the thing about Rajon Rondo, right? Like, he he was the perfect player in the perfect situation in Boston's glory years, uh, and he never was able to replicate that. And I think if you look at a guy like Peyton, you know, I, I always root for I always root for NBA players to be successful unless they play for the Celtics. So he's a guy who hopefully he finds himself in a situation because I I like point guards who are unselfish and who look to make plays for other people. So uh, maybe he'll find himself in such a situation. Uh, such a situation. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe uh, if we pick up, you know, 0708 Kevin Garnett and 0708 Paul yeah. Pierce and put them on the Magic, Alfred Payton would look <laughs> there really you good. Go. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, well, Les, tell the people where they can find you, obviously, uh, on the blog, on Twitter. Where can people find you and connect with you if, if they want to chat about so, this? So, yeah, I've, I've changed my uh, Detroit Bad Boys handle. I'm just Lazarus Jackson of Detroit Bad Boys. I wrote, oh. uh, I wrote the Luke Kennard player preview, and I've also got the Tobias Harris player preview for the season coming up fairly shortly. You can find me on Twitter at last chance that's l-a-z-c-h-a-n-c-e uh if you tweet at me you know i'll tweet back at you perhaps maybe but uh yeah <laughs> uh, you know i like to talk about basketball and uh, i'll engage people on twitter and uh, i'm happy to share my thoughts with uh, anybody and and the uh, greater dbb community uh so you you mentioned you've got the tobias preview give us the 30 to 60 second preview is Tobias going to be a solid player for the Pistons this year and, and what are you expecting? So Tobias is already a really solid player for the Pistons he's just an underutilized piece of what the Pistons do and that should change if the Pistons want to succeed in the future and that that's the elevator pitch for Tobias Harris. I like where your head's at I, I totally I totally co-sign and, and totally agree I hope he becomes um a bit of a go-to guy offensively because I think he's got a really interesting tool set. I know you like him at small forward a lot too. Um, so, you know, we're going to have to see how all that plays out. I, I know you, you've tweeted about that a lot over the course of the yeah, last, what, Stan, year, year Stan has gone against my better judgment. But, you know, that's why he's the head <laughs> coach and I'm just the guy, you know, sitting here in my office. <laughs> it's, the, it's the easier way to do it. So, well, thanks for joining uh, joining us. I guess just joining me, Miss in, in Jordan's absence. But always good to hear from you. Always good to uh, to pick your brain. Especially, I love hearing about uh, your analysis of some of these younger players. It's an area where I don't find myself particularly strong, and I feel like you have some really uh, interesting thoughts to add to the conversation. So, uh, everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, Laz, thanks for joining us. We'll have you again soon. And uh, stay tuned. We've got the Central Division coming up probably in the next day or two. And then we are going to try our darndest to get uh, a preview of the Detroit Pistons, an entire episode talking about the Pistons before the season tips off this week. So, everyone, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you guys soon.